Yeah, and the other problem with Twitter is people I telegraph who they are. I mean, I've I've never understood why you know that's people putting themselves in boxes. So I don't I don't want to know someone's sexual orientation. I don't want to know their political perspective. I don't want to know what their favorite film is. I want to unravel that as I get to know the person. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Feeding Curiosity. I'm your host, Eric Wenzel, as always. Feeding Curiosity is a podcast all about exploring the precarity of human experience and think, question, and synthesize new ideas wherever your curiosity takes you. In today's episode, we are joined by John Tenuto, a sociology professor at the College of Lake County with over 25 years of experience. John's area of expertise is the sociology of sci-fi and pop culture or pop culture specifically sci-fi but his really first love in all of this was star trek and in today's episode we get pretty deep into what it was or what it is about star trek that really captures his attention and for him it's the psychology and sociology of star trek it's the people behind the scenes the designers and the prop builders and all the people that make it believable and then that informs, the, the sci-fi of it, informs people's view of the world and say, what could be possible? And I really think this is one of the huge takeaways of what John pulls away and adds more nuance to these things that shape pop culture. Because it's not just about the stories and the people that are popular from it, the directors and the writers, the people that already get the fame. It's about the people behind it that then add the layers to it that care about how it's presented so that people can take their imagination further, right? Their curiosity. Ooh, see what I did there? Anyways, and then toward the end of the episode, we get really deep into his teaching methods and modalities where he really cares and has an authentic sense of what he cares about, what how he wants to prepare his students for the real world. And it's not just in sociology, that's the specific you, you know, genre, but for him, it's just giving students the tools to succeed as people. And I really enjoyed this. This was super, like it, it really resonated with me because I really have a lot of, you know, personal feelings toward this formalized education system and where it has shortcomings. And I love to change it as much as I could. And, and, and to have a, a professor like John Tenuto here, who really is trying to make changes before the system course corrects, even though he's within the system already. So he's doing what he can, can without waiting for it to just catch up. And I think it's really powerful. And without further ado, everyone, please enjoy this conversation with Professor John Tenuto. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Feeding Curiosity. And today we're joined by John Tenuto. John, thank you for joining us on the show today. Thank you. And so your like short bio here is you're a sociology professor, correct? Yes. And so I want to kind of take it from there where like, can you explain what you do and your area of expertise particularly? Um, sure. Uh, well, I teach at the College of Lake County, which is in Grays Lake, uh, Illinois. I've been there going into my 21st year there. I've been teaching for 25 years. I taught for about uh, three, three, four years at uh, DePaul University, where I was a student originally um, and studied. That's where I was introduced to, to uh 
sociology at the college level was over at DePaul. And uh, so as a sociology professor, you do a couple of things. You primarily, your most important thing is to help students um, understand sociology in the classes that they take, whether it's an introduction class or a social problems class. And kind of what is the science of sociology? A lot of people kind of confuse it or, or think of it as being somehow social work, and it's not not really. It's, it's um, I guess, the easiest description would be I suppose, psychology for groups, I suppose, is how you could talk about it. But it's a science that tries to understand to predict, understand, and explain uh, our lives in groups, and to do that objectively and um, in an unbiased way, and using using the scientific method. And so we study anything where two or more people get together. It could be anything from dating to war to you know macro and micro level uh, experiences. And so you, as a teacher, you try to find interesting ways to present that information to your students, and then to to assess whether or not they they learn that and that's kind of what what the main gist of it is and along with that of course are all the other obligations of teaching whether mm -hmm. it's uh, committees or research or things like that awesome and i, I really like the description that you you had for sociology because i think sociology is one of the more it's harder to pin down uh than some of the other social sciences and um from there, where did you enter into the sociology world? Like, why why did you end up getting caught into this sociology for you? Well, I think I was always in it. Um, I, uh, when I was a little kid, I had wanted to be a, a social studies teacher from the time I was five years old. Uh, I was actually um, inspired by a TV show called Welcome Back, Cotter. And I had was just starting school when Welcome Back, Cotter was on. And if people, were, I'm sure many people remember Welcome Back, mm -hmm. Cotter. It's kind of a classic show, but it's uh, it's a, he was a great teacher on that show. He was a teacher who really cared about his students. He 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 made learning fun. He was able to reach what appeared to be unreachable students, and um, he was a social studies teacher. So mm -hmm. that was, there was that element of it. Um, and, but at the same time, I grew up really from, from the earliest age, uh, loving science fiction, uh, whether it was Planet of the Apes originally or Star Wars and Star Trek and, and a whole host of other, uh, sci-fi, uh, movies and TV shows. And really science fiction is sociology. It's the same thing. It's the mm -hmm. same exact thing, actually. Um, if si science fiction is done right, it's making a commentary about society, um, it mm -hmm. uses more literary, uh, you know, devices and metaphors and similes and all of that to 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 basically make the same arguments uh, or 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 to reveal the same sorts of realities that sociology does. So I, when I, I don't know that I recognized that as a kid, but I, I knew that Planet mm -hmm. of the Apes was about race. You know, I kind of understood that as a kid and. I knew that Star Wars was about more than just the spaceships and it was about religion and Star Trek every episode is a sociology lesson. So I, all of that kind of combined to uh, make me really appreciate and love uh, sociology. Okay, That's, there's so much to unpack there. Um, <laughs> he, the, the specifics of that, like, you know, where you're kind of starting to see the layers behind or beneath the stories that capture, you know, your imagination that really adds a whole nother level of depth to the meaning behind these stories, you know, and as you know, I kind of prefaced my, you know, childhood growing up with Star Wars and, and such like that. And I think 
the more the older I get now, the more I realize how informative those stories that we are that grow up with us and how they impact us as we get aged because you kind of realize that, oh, wait, they're not just, you know, these childlike entities, really. They're, there's something deeper going on. They're teaching us about how the world is or could be, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think people, and I, I, I you know, I, I, it could be a different genre. I mean, it could be, um, you know, uh, last night on the History Channel, they had their tribute to Evil Knievel, you mm-hmm. know, with people trying to break his stunts and stuff. And, you know, when you think about Evil Knievel as a, not as a person, because as a person, there was a, he's a real person. So there's right. a lot of, you know, uh, great and not so great about him as a person. But yeah. as a character, the, the character of Evil Knievel, the person that we knew uh, growing up in the 1970s, uh, he he was he represented everything that was great about America, right? I mean, he was he wore the flag. He mm-hmm. he it was it was you know a, a, you know taking on impossible risks and getting up even if you fail, and therefore you're not a failure if you get up and and and, and continue to if you try to get up. You don't even need to succeed in getting up. But if you try to get up once you had a bad experience, mm-hmm. then that makes you ultimately a success. All those lessons were so important in the 1970s for our culture. And, yeah. or, or take a movie like Bad News Bears, where they, hopefully not spoiling it, but it's 50 years old, so I feel <laughs> it's okay to talk about the end. You know, they don't win at the end of that film. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was really important because America had just, and, and American kids, the, the 13, 14, 15-year-olds, were growing up in a world where we had just lost a war. Yeah, you know, and so how do you deal with now all of a sudden never having lost anything as a country, never having lost a war? To how do you deal with losing? And so, you know, it could be it could be outside of the genre of science fiction, but I think there's something really special about science fiction that because it's speculative and imaginative, yeah, and allows a lot of interpretation on the side of the people watching it. Um, that it it really can be uh, a reflection of where we are at a given time, and then also inspire us to where we want to go. Yeah, I really agree with that. And like as you're explaining this, it makes me think of uh, the Black Mirror on Netflix when you're talking about mm-hmm. this, because it really is kind of pushing that boundary. It's where where it takes something that we already have today and kind of just put turns it to eleven, and it's like here's what a world could be like if it you let it be this way. And I, and I think in most storytelling in general, it's, if having that point to say that, like, here is an example of either the world as it is, you know, obviously pushing the boundaries a little bit further because the world isn't always as um, straightforward. But I think that's really important that we kind of understand that the what we create has a, has a purpose. You know, there's a message and a meaning behind it, rather, even if it doesn't scream at you and tell you the, <laughs> that's the message. Um for you, is there any specific um, stories or books that had kind of shaped outside of the ones you had already mentioned, like ones that you kind of just latched onto and just never let go? Well, I mean, certainly, uh, you know, uh, um, Star Trek has, has informed a great deal of my life, um, both professionally and uh, in the way that I teach and what I research. You know, my wife and I spend an enormous amount of time researching mm-hmm. Uh, Star Trek, and not not interestingly, not necessarily from a purely sociological level, mm-hmm. but from um, appreciating. We spend a lot of our time going through the archives of of the paperwork of Star Trek oh, and wow. looking at how how it was made. 
Uh, so we've been really fortunate. We've been able to go go into people like uh, Nicholas Meyer, who wrote and directed, uh, wrote and or directed Star Trek two, four, and six, mm-hmm. and you know, uh, go into his archives and look at. We have photographs, so 800 photographs that people have never seen before that he's allowed us to digitize wow. and look at, and because our, our and, and, and but also archives or or uh, you know of, of the fan club magazines mm-hmm. or archives of um, uh, Gene Roddenberry's archives over at uh, UCLA, which are open for anybody to go take a look at, which is an amazing collection. There, these our our goal with the research is to is to explore how. The people who made Star Trek made it, despite the fact that they had limitations on mm-hmm. them, and yet, and yet, the, and that those limitations were really inspired by Nicholas Meyer's idea that art thrives on limitations, mm-hmm. and that the best art is one that's produced under limitations, including limitations of, not that anybody wants limitations, but <laughs> but you know, if you have an unlimited budget, an unlimited technology, and no restrictions, usually things are bad. Mm-hmm. But the greatest of all films, when we look at them, are usually made under some kind of restriction. Something like Jaws was made under incredible technology and time restrictions. Star Trek as a TV show and its amazing cultural influence was made uh, under every potential limitation you could think of, from network censorship to technology problems to, you know, how do you do do this when no one's ever shown this type yeah. of thing before? How do you, do, you know, do as the original? You can compare the original Star Wars with the prequels mm-hmm. and say, well, here's here's a, a $200 million film versus a $10 million film, and which <laughs> is considered the classic, right? Yeah. And so we're very, we're, we're inspired by the artists who worked behind the scenes, the, the, the special effects artists, the, the, the people who made the sets, the people who designed the costumes and the makeup. Mm-hmm. And that's who we like to research, the, the people who are usually anonymous, yeah. unless you bother to read the credits. And that's, that's, been a big influence just in how I approach life in that I'm really, I'm not as interested in the athlete as I am in the guy who's cleaning up the stadium afterwards. I'm not as interested, I'm not as <laughs> interested in the cool. politician as the person who wrote the speech. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I become, I'm more interested in the people who don't get any credit, um, who are really the ones who are responsible rather than the artist or the actor who gets all the credit and the money. And that's that's been a big influence within how we do research, mm-hmm. and, and 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 I try to live my life that way. Do you know where that that interest came from? Where instead of looking at the person that's already highlighted and saying, "Wait, what about the other people?" You know, the 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 truly the it takes a village, so to speak, is kind of what you're getting mm-hmm. at. Well, I think that part of it just comes from you know any time. At least for me, I, I, anyway, I get exposed to a story like you know. We don't have this yet, um, you know, thinking of the world of Star Trek, mm-hmm. you know, we, we're five minutes from filming and somebody like Doug Drexler or Mike Akuda or some of these behind the scenes geniuses, they they come up with a solution on the fly in the spot. That's in, automatically interesting to me. And then that's what started my appreciation is mm-hmm. seeing, oh, my gosh, behind that incredible wall, you know, is cardboard. You know, or or what you're looking at is really, you know, uh, what Dr. McCoy uses is really a, 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 a tabletop salt shaker, and they're able to modify it and make <laughs> it look like a, you know, I mean, just take a look at something like, you know, Captain Kirk's communicator. It's transformed the world, yeah. right? We we wouldn't have the cell phone, and that's directly from Martin Cooper, who's the person who invented the 
the modern cell phone, uh, was inspired by Captain Kirk's communicator. And without that inspiration, I don't know, I, I think we'd be in a much better place if we didn't have social media. But <laughs> we, we have it, and we have social media and smartphones and all of that, and a lot of that's because of, if not Star Trek, directly uh, science fiction. And I think that that, to me, is like, the, so the person who, Matt Jeffries and the, and the artists, Wa Chang and all those who made the original Star Trek and the, the designs, you know, when, when we walk in a grocery store and the doors open mm -hmm. for us as we walk in, that design element did not exist prior to Star Trek. And that idea of the doors sort of going like that as you walk through them, <laughs> that, that, that whole, I mean, our whole world is Star Trek, right? I mean, in yeah. a way. And, 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 and so, and everybody's, a, everybody's a, a, a nerd now because everybody is, is on the online and has a computer in their pocket and, and, and all that. We're all and, cyborgs. <laughs> yeah. And who were the people who came up with this? I mean, who are the, who are the people who, you know, we know about the Steve Jobs and I don't, I yeah. don't like to take take away anything from those people, but, but who, who are the people who inspired the Steve Jobs? Mm -hmm. That's to me is more, more interesting. Yeah. I, I really resonate with a lot of this stuff because I've, t I've thought about it and, and, kind of seen the same parallels you know i use star wars as my lens a little bit but you know you look at like data pads or whatever and you see the screens that are just you know whatever almost translucent and you're just holding that and just can touch it that's an ipad right an ipad before an mm -hmm. ipad and i kind of think about it's like these things that as a little kid you know you're like five six seven impressionable ages that are fantastical and you, you you're not old enough to say that can exist they kind of stick with you and then by the time you're old and, you know, like you said, the nerds rule the world, by the time they're old enough to, you know, dare to dream, they're able to take it up and be like, well, why can't that be real? <laughs> Basically. And that, and yeah. it kind of taking the stories and saying, sure, let's do it. Like, why not? Who says we can't? And yeah. I mean, nearly every technology on the original Star Trek, except for beaming, which does exist, right, in very primitive forms where they're able to beam a molecule or something, mm -hmm. you know, um, and, and obviously easy space flight, but a lot of the other technologies exist, mm -hmm. um, that were, you know, that they're, they're talking about, we're talking a lot about going to Mars as a, as a people right now. And, you know, the technology that they're looking at to get us there is ion power. And that was the scientists who are working on that for NASA talk about how that is inspired by there is an ion powered spaceship in Star Trek and mm -hmm. that's what gave them the idea. I mean, so I, there's a, there's a big connection between imagination on the screen and imagination in the real world. I mm -hmm. think. Yeah. A hundred percent. Like it, it's kind of being able to say, you know, when you, when you're an expert in any field, you kind of start to become narrowed, narrowed in your vision where it's like you're too hyper realism where you get narrowed in the sense like, I don't think that'll work. And sometimes you just need something that is just so outside of the, the possible in, in real reality to kind of just say, well, why not? And just kind of follow that thread, you know, the curiosity to be totally cliche. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. No, that's, that's definitely true. And, and um, for you, as, as this is like evolved, is there anything that like, because this is such a specific area and I don't think a lot of people, a lot of people I think grow up and they have these hobbies and these interests like star Wars, star Trek and all and anything. It could be whatever it is, sports. And they eventually kind of become disillusioned by the fact of whatever it is and say, I don't think that's my path, but it seems like you've been able to kind of find a way to 
merge your both of your interests, both hobby and academically, or whatever your career you'd call it. Is it? Yeah, I mean, I'm, 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 you know, I would say I'm, I'm, I would say I'm, you know, fortunate for sure. Um, and, uh, but I also think it has to do with, I mean, I, I, it's part of his personality, right? I mean, I, I, I like all the same things I liked when I was five. So I, <laughs> I don't, you know, I, and, and I don't necessarily like, um, I've added for sure. I mean, there are things yeah. I've added, but I really haven't added a lot. I mean, I, I, the, you know, I mean, I like, I, I don't like a lot of new things. I don't like, it takes a lot for a new TV show to capture my imagination. And, you know, and part, I was thinking about that last night. In fact, I watched that, that, that evil, evil uh, special thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, cause I had grown up with, I still have the, my toys, my evil, evil toys from when I was a kid, but I, um, I, I, then this is going to sound strange, but I don't want to take away from these modern athletes because I sure, I mean, I can't walk straight and these guys can jump a bike, you know, over a building. So <laughs> they're, they're very professional and very talented and, 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 and committed and they're serious athletes. I don't want to take anything away from them, right. but their bikes are 150 pounds lighter than Evil Knievel's were. Oh, wow. They've got, eight, you know, intense. 18 inches of torque space where Evil Knievel had four. Um, which means they're just able to to land much better. It's so it's it. I want to say, it's kind of the equivalent of today's music or 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 just almost anything in today. When you watch a sitcom today, like Big Bang Theory, mm-hmm. they change scenes so frequently so that it's just joke, another scene, joke, another scene, gotcha. joke, another scene, and they're really not good. I mean, from from one viewpoint they're not it, it isn't good you don't need a lot of talent to write like that you don't need a lot of talent now that again the guys who write that are making hundreds of millions of dollars a year and i'm sitting in my you know my <laughs> under two hundred thousand dollar house right so what do i know but but and and it probably maybe looks a lot easier for me as the out, an outsider than it is to actually produce right but mm-hmm. so uh, but at the same time if you watch something like the honeymooners where the entire episode takes place on one set and they can't use, I mean, one of the things I noticed that if you watch sitcoms today or, or, or you watch something like young Sheldon, they use music to telegraph to you that this sequence is supposed to be funny. Mm. And when you watch these older shows, they didn't really do that too much. Yeah. And, you know, or you watch something like Welcome Back, Cotter or something. There was almost no music. There was transitional music from one scene to the next. But they didn't overlay music to let you know that this is supposed to be funny, you know, or, or they telegraph that it's supposed to be funny. Yeah. And so the, it's funny because when I do show, I once in a while I'll show my students an old episode of something like Welcome Back, Cotter or 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 whatever, or you, even just something a little more recent like Frasier, which is just brilliantly written. Mm-hmm. And you and you show them that they're, they're laughing and laughing and laughing and they'll come up and they say, Oh, that's so funny. And and it's like, yeah, because you guys don't know funny anymore. (laughs) And it's not their fault. It's, it's the fault. It's the fault of the, you know, when you watch a music video, there's 150 edits. Well, you compare that dancing with the dancing of the Nicholas brothers or the dancing of, um, you know, Fred Astaire and there's no cuts, there's no edits and, and, or there were fewer. And, you know, of course we're seeing the best take, you know, of, of, of any of those, but, the, 
there's very little talent, to t- in my opinion, today in the world that mm-hmm. gets the attention because anybody can be a star on YouTube. You just have to film a dog doing <laughs> something and then you get a, a, a billion views, right? Right. So you don't necessarily need a lot of talent, right, to be successful. And it, I, it, in the older days, I think you needed you needed that. Now I could just be curmudgeonly, 50-year-old curmudgeon. But, <laughs> um, but I think that one of the reasons I haven't, I don't say advanced too much in terms of like, well, I have 500 or 200 different interests is because it's difficult for these newer things to break through and speak to me. I don't, Mm -hmm. I can't watch them and go, well, that's good because I watch it and go, that's not as good as this, this or this. And, you know, I mean, I, 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 you know, I watch a show like even the Partridge family, the quality writing on the Partridge family far exceeds the level of writing on nearly every sitcom that's on today. And, you know, the sitcoms are maybe better acted today and the sets are better and, and all of that. But, you know, the new Battlestar Galactica is not as good as the original because mm-hmm. it's not original. Right. Right. I mean, it's, it's a remake. And that's a lot of what we get are remakes, redos. Uh, and, and so yeah. I may as well watch the why, – why watch the remake when I can watch the original? So there's two thoughts that I have here. So the the first one is it sounds like kind of the at least the way you're describing was like the cutting and the hyper uh, it's almost like attention grabby because that seems like a symptom of today's modern society with all of the social media and clickbait where it's like the average American has like a 3 second attention span or something like that and so like average YouTube video I think has to be around 3 minutes. I think it's less than 3 minutes now. I think my But regardless Basically, it's kind of getting at this idea that we just don't have the attention span that we once did, and that could be something, symptom of the technology being perversed by clickbait in this advertisement model. The The second one was the, like, ca- capturing lightning in a bottle, right? Like, these things that, these stories and stuff that have captured people, and then the producers, you know, like you said, it starts out with limitations, and then it gets popular, and so then people just throw more money at it. And so they create more and more and more of the same thing. But by creating more, it doesn't mean it keeps it the same freshness. Yeah, you know, it's, there's a lot there. But one is one idea, too, is you take of a show, you talk about the time frame, right? So mm-hmm. you take a show like Father Knows Best, which they had to produce nearly 40 episodes a season, mm-hmm. 40 episodes, right? Now That's you contrast that with, you have 13 episode seasons now, right? Mm-hmm. On a lot of shows. Um, and then you, they were 26, 25, 26 minutes of story. I've watched Big Bang Theories and Young Sheldon's that have run barely 20 minutes. And so they had to write more they had to they had to write more episodes a season, sometimes three times the amount of episodes that are written a season now, mm-hmm. and they had to write longer episodes. And then what's interesting is there was only an A story, and a lot of times there was only an A story. If you watch something like Father Knows Best, there was only one story through the whole twenty six minutes. Mm-hmm. It, it held your attention with one story. There wasn't oh. an A B C D story, right? Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, that they because they weren't always cutting away because they couldn't cut away because they didn't have money to build all the sets, right? Right. So now, Big Bang Theory can literally have four at four stories an episode going, and so each story only needs to be eight minutes or mm-hmm. three minutes. You know, it's and and a lot of times, when do you get the resolution? You get the resolution and the tag at the end. 
of a story because mm-hmm. there's no, or there is no resolution because we have arc based storytelling, which is, I think is also sort of in a way destroyed American television, uh, becoming like British television and doing arc based stories has been one of our biggest mistakes. It was just an opinion, of course, not a scientific mm-hmm. fact, but, uh, it's usually done very poorly. And, and so, and which is why every season of a show, you'll watch a season, you'll say, wow, that's a great show. Mm-hmm. Then you come back the next year and the show is completely different because they've yep. resolved that year arc. The arc is more important than the characters and therefore the characters can change. You could take a show like the flash, right? Which in its first year was very unique. I thought it was an mm-hmm. optimistic fun. I mean, it's something that superhero films have been missing for a long time. in yeah. superhero television shows. There was no angst. It was, it was just a fun, um, they you know, it was, grit, it was that, the, clever. Right. And then they came back second season. Now they had a gritty storyline and mm-hmm. they fundamentally altered the character because they had to have the character meet the, that year's storyline. And so that's, you know, that's, part of the problem with arc-based television. It's usually not, I mean, there certainly are examples where you can watch it and go, well, that's really good. Yeah, right. You know, but but there, that's not often. And I don't know that it even works on something like a sitcom. Because mm-hmm. then what you wind up with is, why am I even watching Big Bang Theory when it, basically the characters are fundamentally not the same characters? Yet, when I watch something like Happy Days, you know, the characters are the same. Yeah, is there any character growth? You know, yeah, but but I'm not, I'm watching it for it's a situation comedy. It's not a arc comedy, and it, mm-hmm. so you know you 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 get a you get you, it's almost like what's happened to comic books, right? If you go and get a a 1960s, 70s, and before Superman comic, mm-hmm. in one issue, they tell what takes them six issues to tell today. Because wow. the other thing is the arc, the arc-based storytelling today requires a lot of filler mm-hmm. to make that story uh, an entire season's worth of stories when really it might just be a great, like, two-parter. Yeah. Right? It also limits, by Star Trek, for example, I think it was, uh, they seem to have fixed that in the second season of Discovery, but they were really harmed in the first year of Discovery, not knowing, I think, how to do arc-based storytelling because Star Trek depends on you going to explore planets, not a single mm-hmm. issue. And, and it was, it's, they figured out how to do that in the second season, I think in a much more successful way. But, um, but getting back to the time thing that you were talking about, I mean, a lot of that is social media. Social media mm-hmm. has destroyed our concept of history. And because literally one, you know, what you post on the Facebook in, in, in an hour, it's at the bottom of your feed. Yeah. And so it's ancient history. <laughs> And so, and, and we have a whole, like, too long, didn't read culture. Yeah, that's very true. And you can't, you can't have a discussion. I mean, the average, the average American teenager knows less people today, not more. So social yeah. media has done nothing that it's promised to do. Mm-hmm. It has not given us more connection to people. It's given us less connection to people. It has not made us happier or better. The, the depression rates among teens, particularly teen girls, Mm-hmm. are exponentially greater now because of social media, because likes are, are, are equivalent to some sort of social yeah. um, recognition. Right. And so uh, it, it, it's, and, and it's, and it's destroyed learning. It's destroyed writing. Um, it, it is, it is the singularly most damaging technology, I think in the history of the world. And I say that knowing that we have technologies like nuclear weapons, 
mm-hmm. because uh, nuclear power has a positive element to it. And that doesn't mean that social media has no positive element to it. Uh, because it can maybe help somebody with a problem. It can make somebody who's shy perhaps have connections with mm-hmm. people. It it can raise awareness of causes, but but the 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 damage that it's done and the damage I think it's going to continue to do um, from a sociological point of view is mm-hmm. very concerning. And the speed at which, see, there's a difference too, right? Nuclear power is not in the hands of the average person. Right. Right. And this is in the hands of every person and it has fundamentally altered our relationships with each other in the span of 15 years, 20 years yeah. in, in a way that television never did. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and whatever effect television had it took longer because it took longer for it. I mean, television was invented in the thirties. It wasn't even in most people's homes for 20 years. Right. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't until the fifties it was in people's homes. So it, 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 it's, you know, even more than the automobile. Mm-hmm. And I think that that has social media has changed everything, even our perception of time. Yes. And has altered all these other things like how we watch movies and what's in movies and every movie has got to have a musical number in it so that, you know, you have a, you know, it's, <laughs> so you can hold people's attention mm-hmm. and it's just, it's, it's changed everything. Yeah. I, I mean, I really resonate with that. I, I personally like the, the idea that everything has to be short form and lacks nuance, right? Like everything needs to be cut up to the smallest message that you can possibly get out of it. And then it just causes it to be remove any sort of nuance from it because you can't just sum people up or ideas up into three seconds or whatever. I like to say five minutes, but that's probably too long for most people. And yeah, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think when you take a look at something like Twitter, right? Yeah, exactly. And so people, people, you can't, first of all, one, one of the things with Twitter, things like Twitter, is you can't have a prolonged discussion about anything because mm-hmm. of the limitations of the character size, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not a genuine conversation. And then, and, and, and it's not even a conversation. And then secondly, it's the other direction Twitter. Is, yeah. And the other problem with Twitter is people, I telegraph who they are. I mean, I've, I've never mm-hmm. understood why, you know, that's people putting themselves in boxes. So I don't, I don't want to know someone's sexual orientation. I don't want to know their political perspective. I don't want to know what their favorite film is. I want to unravel that as I get to know the person. <laughs> but what we do is we say, here's my Twitter little, you know, description of myself. So I've already, I'm already have an impression of that person before I've ever had an interaction with them. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's, that's not a healthy thing. I think it's better for us to unravel one another and have mysteries about one another and get to know one another through our conversations and our interactions so that I know you as a full person. Mm-hmm. I don't know you as a, a category to check off a little box. Oh, you're this. Mm-hmm. I don't need to know that about you until I need to know that about you and until it's right for you to reveal that to me. Mm-hmm. And we've lost that ability. And that's one of the reasons we have so much dis, you know, such an incivility is because yeah, the polarization we, we, and stuff like that. Absolutely. Cause we didn't, you know, people didn't talk about politics with each other. If they did, they did it. Um, with friends and mm-hmm. you know, if you and I have an established relationship and then I find out that you love this person politically and I despise that person politically, you and I already have this formation of a friendship mm-hmm. and I can go, you know, Hey, we agree on 90% of stuff, 
we disagree on this one thing or this 10%. Oh, wow. You don't have, you don't have that anymore already. I disagree with you before I've ever engaged with you. Mm-hmm. And like, there's no, there's no basis for that, 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 you know, there's no idea like it, and it used to be okay to have friends who were different political parties or didn't agree with you mm-hmm. on everything. I mean, I, I had friendships with people that were based solely on, Star Trek and Star Wars, and mm-hmm. we didn't really agree on a whole lot of other. We didn't need to because we, right. we had that one thing that made us connect, connected to one another, and and we you know we didn't reveal these things about ourselves because we we had some decorum. You know, mm-hmm. we had we had a sense of like, well, I don't talk to everybody. I mean, I don't reveal to strangers what I do in my bedroom, right? And yet people reveal that and it's like, well now what, first of all, what makes you think I want to know that? Mm-hmm. Right. What, what makes you think that you, your, your, your orientation, your political persuasion, your hobbies, your interests hmm. are of that much interest to the rest of the world. I think one of the things it does is it elevates us all to think we're all like paparazzi or we're, right. we're worthy of paparazzi because we're our own paparazzi. Right. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it kind of sounds like to me is this, this idea that, Sure, like we have all these different, you know, things that are interests, right? And from a sociological end, it's like you're the only person that's ever going to have all of these selected groups of interests ever at one point if you look at it as like a web. And mm-hmm. we, instead of saying, okay, only certain certain of these things are going to overlap with a certain subsection of people, we just say everyone should accept all of my interests because I am special and unique for what it is. And I think that's kind of looking at it in the wrong direction because you kind of have to pick and choose like the, it's like a costume with interacting with different people. Like you're not going to walk into a job and like a boardroom or something and act one way, you know, like with your best friend and you know what I mean? Like you can't just act the same way in every environmental or any situation you have in your life. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, that's very, yeah, very, very true. And I think that, you know, part of it is just like to respect I mean, my presumption when I meet any human being is that every human being is worthy of respect and mm-hmm. dignity. And I mean, they're a human being, right? Absolutely. So they'd have to do something for me not to like them, right? Yes. So my presumption is I'm going to like you and and you're a nice person. That's my presumption when I meet every human being. Now, now some people... I misinterpret and I think that they're not nice or I don't like them when maybe I should have or vice or I'm right and they are a jerk and uh-huh. or I'm a jerk whatever we're just jerks to each other and that's that's different because then then there's been a reason right there there something has occurred that makes me have that perception yes and and you know the reality is I don't it isn't that it isn't that I'll see something if I see something on on, on somebody's profile and I disagree with it, that doesn't make me dislike the person. It just makes me wonder. It's the same thing as if I agreed with it. I'd wonder why, why have you chosen that thing about yourself to reveal? Mm-hmm. Like why not the other 150 things about you? Cause of course you can't put, you can't put your full profile down either cause you're limited in right. the number of spaces. So, so you're saying these are the most important things about you. And then you know, it, it just, to me, it goes back to sort of symbolic interactionism. It's how you present yourself. Mm. And, and to me, it's, it's, 
I, when I interact with people, I want to, I want to interact with them in a way where I'm learning something from them. Hope maybe they can learn something from me. Maybe mm-hmm. I could share something with them. We, we have a good encounter, whatever the purpose of that encounter is, is the purpose of the encounter to buy something at the store is the purpose of the encounter to help a student with a problem. Um, it's almost like at the, the at, at at some schools that I, when I walk around different mm-hmm. schools or whatever, I'll notice people have up on their doors symbols to let particular types of students know that they can go in there mm-hmm. and talk to them because that their understanding about that issue, whatever the issue is, mm-hmm. immigration, sexual orientation, uh, political point of view, whatever it is. Yeah. And my view is, I don't put, I'm not going to put a sign outside my door because every student, whether I agree or disagree with them is welcome in my office. Every student should feel comfortable talking to me because my job isn't to get the student to think a certain way. My job is to help the student figure out how to think. Mm-hmm. What's the, what are the tools that help you think? When you're making a decision, what are the best strategies you can use to make the decision? Not to tell them how to live their life. Yeah. Or to validate their, not to validate their life, nor to negate their life, but to help them achieve their goals. And so I'll never put a thing outside my door that says this, because that presumes then that other types of people are not welcome. Yes, because like, right. you shouldn't have to telegraph it, right? Like it should just be. Right, and that's how I feel about the, 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 the profiles, you know, it's like, uh, you know, I mean, it's, I, again, I don't want to overstate it because if somebody just puts on there what they're what their occupation is, that's, I guess, different because maybe they're using <laughs> Twitter. They might be using right. Twitter for business purposes, right? I mean, that's fine. Uh, but when we start revealing kind of like what I consider to be like things you would reveal in an intimate way with other people, intimate mm-hmm. friends or fram, family or whatever, I, I'm always, I guess I'm confused by it. But mm-hmm. Maybe I just don't understand it, which is probably entirely possible. <laughs> I, I think you're hitting on something that I think it's just part of the awareness that you have because of the you've been able to see the technology progress in a, at a much more at a larger scale than myself. It's you know for me I'm 26, so to, to see this kind of transition happen is kind of I've grown up with it, right? So I'm a little too close to be able to see how it's there because it's just like by the time I was in high school I had a phone in my hand and then all of these pro- platforms exist and it's like we're just con- conducting this mass experiment on everybody, and so you kind of you can kind of imagine a world without it because you were part of a world without it. So, well, that's true. That's true with entertainment too. I mean, I think, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, and, and this isn't to say, I mean, I, I, nobody who likes Star Trek as much as I do is a Luddite by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> but, uh, but, um, and I love technology and I have a cell phone and everything else, but, but, um, I think of something like on demand technologies right now, of course, I, I appreciate on demand technologies quite a bit, but at the same time, uh, there is a uh, very serious uh, repercussion of on-demand, w- especially for those who've grown up with it, who mm-hmm. believe that everything's on-demand. Yes. So we live in an on-demand. That, that people use the phrase entitlement um, generation or whatever it happens to be, but really I, I always perceive it as more of an on-demand type mm-hmm. of thing because – you know, when I was a kid, if you, if you, for example, if you wanted to watch Happy Days, let's say, just borrow a show, yeah. it was on Tuesday, Tuesdays at 7 o'clock. If I tuned in at 7.30, I missed Happy Days. So one of the things that not having on demand, not having the ability to even, even at that time, I couldn't record. I mean, there were a few people who had Betamax players and VHS players, but they cost like $1,000, right? So mm-hmm. we're talking here the mid-1970s. The average American doesn't have that. And so if you didn't watch Happy Days at 7 o'clock, you missed it. And what you'd have to do is you'd have to wait until summer 
or the next year or a couple years later when the reruns or syndication were done mm -hmm. and maybe you could catch that episode again. Well, now, if I miss, if I wanted to watch uh, Big Bang Theory at 7 o'clock, I could watch it on demand at 7.30 on CBS All Access or on the computer, or I could, I could DVR it and never have to remember when it's on. And one of the things that I've seen is that's affected students in their ability to turn work in on time. Oh, wow. Or just to be on time or to be early. Mm -hmm. Because what's the div? Hey, if, if I say a paper's due at 11.59, I can't tell you, I get a lot of papers at 12.08. So oh. 12.08 is not late, right? It's only nine minutes late. That's the perspective. But if you're getting on an airplane That's and you're late. nine minutes late, that airplane has taken off. Yeah. And one of my goals as a teacher is to try to get students to develop real-world practical skills. If you have a million-dollar contract with a company and you have to do a proposal and you're nine minutes late, you're late. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to get that contract. Right. And, yep. and if you want to watch Happy Days at seven o'clock when I was a kid and you watched it at seven at seven or nine, you missed the first nine minutes. So not, not everything in the world. In fact, most things in the world are not on demand. Yep. And so uh, you show up nine minutes late to a court case. Guess what's going to happen to you? Yeah. Right? <laughs> so uh, the 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 on demand world, I think, has really affected um, has really affected. Uh, particularly the younger generation, and, and I think also maybe even older generations too, but particularly younger generations growing up with it, thinking that the whole world is on demand. Yeah. So it's it's not it's not, um, you know, may I may I do stuff? It's I'm gonna do stuff, mm -hmm. and that has filtered into the mindset of people um, in a way that I think is uh, concerning. Yeah, it, it's kind of like this instant gratification type mindset that we have it's like i want a, something right you can buy something off of amazon and it shows up in two days or anything like mm -hmm. that but i mean for me it's like a completely different frame of mind and mostly because of how my parents operate so i've kind of gotten a lot of that from osmosis but um it, it makes a lot of sense that people kind of view deadlines as you know a, a, a standard deviation from you know plus or minus 10 minutes from whenever it's supposed to be due. And that just seems a little crazy to me, but it makes a lot of sense when looked at the lens of how technology has trained us to be. The other side of it is how do you keep students engaged in this world when everyone has a, you know, there's studies that they've done where when a cell phone uh, buzzes in your pocket and you don't even look at it, it breaks your concentration, takes about 15 minutes for you to come kind of focus back in. Uh, just even if you think you're not, <laughs> I'm just curious if there's anything that you've been able to do to kind of keep students engaged. Cause it, when you're not engaged, you're just not going to uh, learn anything. Well, you know, I'm, I'm pretty, uh, the, 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 the nice thing is I get a year older every year and my students stay the same age. Right. And <laughs> so on the one hand, that's bad because I'm older and they're, they're 18. They're always 18. They're always 19, 20 years old. But, um, I got to say, you know, part, but one thing is I, I've never bought into the, you know, I've always thought this, this, this as a sociologist, I'm speaking here, right. uh, these concepts that we have of generations, mm -hmm. that isn't to say that certain events or something can't shape, um, an overall, um, like Vietnam or something can shape an overall experience mm -hmm. of, a, of, a, of a, of a group of people. But that being said, um, you had mentioned something like your parents. Well, you know, I'm, I'm from, the Gen X, but in no way 
shape or form do I have most traits of a Gen X mm-hmm. person. And that's because my parents were, were much older than I was when, mm-hmm. when they were born. I was, I, my older brother is 17 years older than I am. Oh, wow. So yeah. I, my, my parents were from the depression era. And so, um, and, and the world war two era, they, so I didn't grow up with like, like my parents were, were 15, 20 years older than the majority of my peers. Yeah. So when I grew up, my household, the, the movies that I liked, the, the things that I saw were all from like several generate, like two generations removed. Yeah. And so, um, I think everybody has a unique experience. And mm-hmm. so I always, I'm always reticent to say that, that there's anything called millennials or that there are anything called mm-hmm. the iGen. Um, because I see so many students who are, do not fall into the categories, especially particularly mm-hmm. the negative categories that they're, that they, they're, they're not obsessed with the technology that they're now that being said, I can tell you the, the, my greatest depression as a teacher um, is at the start of class. When I first started teaching 25 years ago, mm-hmm. every class you had to tell students to quiet down before class started because mm-hmm. they were engaged with one another. They were talking about their weekend, which was great. You know, you, you, right. you haven't started class yet, right? And you're, everybody, and so, it, and that gives an energy that gave an energy to the class. There was a, there was a, they were on the jazz, you know, it was, there was a lot of conversation, um, a lot of buzz and, you know, people were hitting on each other or trying to get to who were engaged with one another. And yeah. then you'd have to like, go like, Hey, Hey, okay, let's get started. And you'd have to wait like a minute that like for things to quiet down <laughs> and then stop talking. And I used to, you used to be agitated by that. Now I miss it because I walk into class we have automatic lights, right? So if you're, if you don't have movement, the lights go down. So I always get to my class like an hour early and I set up the board and everything and I walk out and then I come back in, uh, you know, five minutes before Mm -hmm. something class is supposed to start and my board is ready and my technology set up and everything. And so when I leave the classroom, there's no students. When I come in, most of the students are there and the lights are off because they're not moving around. So when they walk in, the lights go on, right? But then the lights go off because there's no movement. They sit in darkness. I come in the class, the classroom's dark, and they're all on their phones. And Mm -hmm. when when I tell you that if I watched this semester, I had two girls who sat on the side who talked to one another at the start of some classes. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I never saw a student this entire year talk to another student before class started. Wow. They were all on their phones, all of them. That's now that's an interesting change. Yeah. A very interesting change. But that being said, you know, the students are, they, they're, this is a good, this is a good generation. If we're going to lump them into a generation Mm -hmm. in the sense that I think that they, they care about things. They 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 uh, they want to be engaged. They don't necessarily always know how to be engaged mm-hmm. with the world, um, but they're but they're lonely. Yes. And so what I found what I found is that actually helps in class because they they do watch and pay attention. There mm-hmm. there isn't there. It, it, and on the one hand, it's bad because there isn't as much like raise the hand and go 
hey, Tenuto, you're an idiot, and here's why you're an idiot. And I actually liked that when students would do that, you know, not necessarily calling me an idiot, but I did like when they would be like, well, now wait a second. Right. You know, Goffman's saying this, but what about this? Or mm-hmm. the, the, what about this? And you don't get that anymore. It's much more sort of like pa- passive. And so one of the things I've tried to do is go opposite to what they normally get. So I don't do very much PowerPoint at all. Okay. Um, uh, uh, the only time I use PowerPoint is to use photographs. Mm-hmm. Um, if I do like a photo essay or something, I want them to see pictures. Yes. Um, I use a lot of popular culture. I always have, though. That's always been a part mm-hmm. of my thing. So I'll, I use what they, what they'll, what they like, and, and that's become a bit of a challenge because I don't know that there is popular culture anymore. It's so niche and, and, and customized and, you know, uh, uh, everybody's sort of watching their yeah. own thing. It isn't like the, oh, it wasn't the days when people, when 45 million people watched the same show every week. Now a show is number one if 8 yeah. million people watch it, you know. Paradox of choice. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and so there, so, but what, what, you, what you can do is use something like Superman or Star Wars mm-hmm. or, 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 or weird things like Goonies. Like for some yeah. reason, They've all seen Goonies. I don't know why. It's a generational um, thing to kind of lump yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> so I, you know, I, I saw it in theaters, and it was a it was a failure as a film at that time. But it is it is I liked it, but it was but it was a it, it's become something. So you can you can do that sort of thing. What I what I do is I shy away from using too much things. Like I don't use YouTube a lot. Mm-hmm. I don't use. Um, uh, I do talk about social media a lot. So I, I try to kind of go, I always believe you go where students are at to then to try to bring them to where you want them to be. So you start with what they know. Yes. And then you bring them up. But I try to do, I, I don't, you know, I try to do things like talk about why why this technology is both good and bad, as mm-hmm. I think every technology is. But 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 they only ever hear the good side or they haven't really reflected on the negative side of it. And I'm always amazed at how much they respond to that. Mm-hmm. I think they, once they explain to them, cause they think they understand it. And I don't know if it ever changes any behavior, but if I can get one kid to not text while they drive, I've done a pretty good mm-hmm. job that year. That's how I look at it. Um, and so, it, but it's really important to be, the other thing is I think you need to love what you do. So because I love, I, I love sociology <laughs> so much and I do love my students. I want them to be successful. I think mm-hmm. of every student as, as if they were my kid and because my kid is about their age and I want, I want whatever their goal is, whether it's to be a dancer or a YouTube celebrity or a doctor or whatever it is, I want them to achieve that goal. And so if you are engaged and you're enthusiastic and you, and they know or sense that you genuinely care about them, they usually go with you on the journey. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it also requires calling them out. So when they, when they're looking at their phones in class, it's you, you, you know, you also be careful because it's also possible the students looking at the phone because they're tired today's world. They're taking notes on their phone. Yeah, that's true. So I'm I'm always cautious about it and wouldn't do it in a public way that embarrasses them. But I will pull a student aside, you know, who's not doing good. And if I'm noticing that they're doing stuff like that, I'm going to say, hey, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you didn't do so good because <laughs> and, you know, that kind of stuff. And just to show them that you care and that you you want them to be successful and that you and that you're in your you're and you're and that you're yourself. So I, I don't. 
there's no sort of um, barrier between them and myself. I yeah. don't I don't even use a lectern, you know, because I think that represents a physical barrier. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is, I mean, I memorize my lecture, so the whole oh, lecture wow. is. I there are no notes. I don't mm-hmm. use notes. Um, I put an outline on the board for them, mm-hmm. but I don't use PowerPoint notes. I don't use anything. I talk for the fifty minutes without notes, and so they're always like, I get a lot of students who are like, how do you know, how do you remember all these numbers? How do you do? And you know, it's just, it's what I do. So yeah. I mean, it's the same way, the same way a doctor can go in and perform a surgery, right? I mean, you just put the reps, you in. do it long enough, long <laughs> enough, you can do it, you know? Yeah. That's, that's very, very insightful. And I think I'll, the the love of what you do is really coming through in this conversation, and I, the the authenticity of what you bring with it is is re- really apparent, and it's ca- kind of magical to kind of have that little bit of extra depth to it because you you you're very mindful of both you know both sides of this the, the sword basically because everything is nothing is inherently bad or good, and you you kind of try to paint that picture, and I think a lot of what it I think a lot of the difficulty of being a teacher today, at least it seems like for me, is kind of bridging the gap because unfortunately the kids today don't have a model or at least their parents are, are just as much in on the, the experiment as they are. So they don't, there's no blueprint to kind of manage a lot of these things anymore. Like it's up to each other yeah. to kind of learn and manage how we're going to use it. And I think that's going to be the, the superpower of the next, I don't know, forever probably is kind of taking the devices for what they are and knowing, you know, the little dopamine drip that they give us and all that kind of stuff and trying to self limit so they don't control us and you control it, you know, don't let the technology abuse itself on you. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I mean, one of the things I try to tell the students I do, I do, I've added a lot of practical um, lessons. I think, you know, when I look at my teaching, when I first started, it was a little more theoretical because Mm -hmm. students were, a little more traditional in the way that they were typical students. You know, if they were in college, they were decent writers. They had mm-hmm. at least had, you know, passed through high school. Now, of course, we have entire high school systems that are just, I mean, that the, the big, you know, one of the things being in education 25 years, I've noticed is that, you know, both faculty and administrators, they're just the victims of their last conversation a lot of times. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they, they go to a conference, somebody has a buzzword, mm-hmm. and then that filters through all these accrediting agencies and all these different, and everybody's focused on that for five years, mm-hmm. then you never hear about it again. And I can rattle off a list of you from <laughs> dis- discipline-focused to first-year initiatives to all this stuff that just come and go and come and go. And then, of course, they always go because administrators particularly leave and then they, because they, because they, they do it, and then that gets them some notoriety, and then they go off to someplace else, and then they leave behind, and nobody, someone else comes in with a new idea. So education has always been a mess, right? Mm-hmm. It's particularly a mess now. And and um, and the the new thing now is student success. So that's the buzzword. Okay. You're going to hear that. You're going to hear that now for the next five years till somebody comes up with another buzzword at a conference <laughs> that filters through like a virus in the mindsets mm-hmm. of the lemmings that are in education, including myself. Um, and so uh, uh, student success is a good, is it, it, if you don't get into it too much mm-hmm. and leave it as what it states, that should have always been the purpose of education, right? right. Student success. So I'm all, I'm all on board right? In a way, I've never been on board on most of these other uh, ideas, but it's already taking on 
weird formations. Mm-hmm. And one of those weird formations is passing students when they hmm. don't deserve to be passed, which is to me the greatest sin. An, educa- an educator who passes a student because a school is worried, or, or administrators who allow that, because a school is worried about what their numbers are, should lose their job. Mm-hmm. Because that's, that's malpractice. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing the results of that now. I'm seeing students, I, a student who comes to me is a student. I mean, that's why they're a student. They're supposed to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. They're supposed to have things that they need to improve on. I don't expect a college student to write in an introductory class at the level of, you know, a PhD student. Right. I, I'm just looking for, I'm just looking for certain things. Like I, I don't even have like these restrictive rubrics or anything like that. It's just sort of like, can you, can you present an idea? Can you back it up? Can you do it using basically the English language in a, in a way that I could read it and understand it? Yeah. I, I can't get that anymore a lot of times. Wow. I mean, I, I can't get it. And that's not the student's fault. That's the fault of the system that passes those students along mm-hmm. and doesn't fix their work, doesn't sit with them, and doesn't make them truly be successful. Successful isn't an A. Successful is you came into the class not knowing A, and now you know A. That's mm-hmm. success. Success is not grades and passing numbers. Success is what a student learns and what and, and, and meaningful things that they learn. And so um, that has been a big challenge. So one of the things I've noticed is I have to go, I literally have to go and teach things that these kids should have been taught in like grammar school. Mm-hmm. But grammar school is not teaching anything anymore because it's all about those standardized tests and how much, how much, you know, and the McDonaldization of education and all of that mm-hmm. and making every student come out looking the same and making sure that the scores are high on it, which is leading some jurisdictions mean, to some places where you have teachers and administrators sitting around literally cheating and taking the tests for students wow. so that the scores are higher. And so, um, uh, you, we, we, I'm, I'm going back a lot and doing a lot of practical things. So mm-hmm. one of the things I do with my students is talk about how, why they should save money, mm-hmm. like why you need to save money. And I show them what happens if you put 15% of your salary away and wow. how you will be earning <laughs> the average. If you earn the average American salary and that's all you earn your whole life, you never get a raise. You only make the average American salary. If you put away 15% of your money, you will be a millionaire by the time you are 65 years old. You will have a million dollars. Mm-hmm. Right. And how you do that and what simple interest is. And they don't know this. No one teaches them. They're teaching them higher order mathematics that they're never going to use. Right. They teach them about all these other countries, but not the mayor of their own town. Mm -hmm. Right. They don't know how to measure a wall to to do 16 inches and find a stud in a wall. But they but they know how to do Euclidean math. Yeah. And so. Uh, that, what I'm finding is going back and teaching some of these sort of practice, sneaking in practical lessons I with students. <laughs> and one of the practical lessons, one of the practical lessons is if you are in, engaged in the real world, you are automatically going to be more successful than most people who have their face in a tablet, mm-hmm. who, who, who know the names of everyone of, uh, of a band or know, you know, 
what the newest meme is online, if you're engaged, because that person is not going to accomplish anything, mm-hmm. right? If that's if that's all they do, I mean, you could do that and other things. Right. But if you have your if you have your face to the real world, and you and you and you, you can accomplish real things, right? Instead of living your life through what does you know what does Paul Logan have to the Logan brothers say about something? <laughs> You know, um, and so I think that that's, that's, it, 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 but when they hear that though, I get a lot of students who respond. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, they're just waiting for the message. I think I think it's because people don't, there's a directness that's not spoken. Like there's that limit, limited interaction with people where people aren't, aren't speaking to each other directly anymore because everyone is a little afraid to be authentically themselves. Right. There's like the, the other end of the spectrum is right. Like people put too much forward, but it's more of like putting on a face Whereas I think when people are actually are afraid to show interest in something or, or how to be better. Um, and then it's like, once you give them the, the, the little nugget of information, like I think the best teachers and what you're kind of saying is like you, you instead of handing, handing them the answer, right. You, you kind of put the breadcrumb trail and it's like, you know, to use the family guy references, the ooh piece of candy um, is it, kind of what learning is all about. At least in my perspective is you kind of the teacher is there to guide you and to give you the, the foundational toolbox. And then you have all the toolbox, like all the tools in the toolbox, but it's just a matter of figuring out how to use them best in given situation. Yeah, absolutely. The, the biggest mistake education has made. And I think this is unfortunately filtered into the way parents think and, and, and um, students think is that I, I'm not responsible for student learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, the student is responsible for student learning mm-hmm. right now. It's, it's almost, I, the, the analogy I always give is I'm the guy who sells you the exercise equipment. <laughs> I'm the guy who, te- I'm the guy who shows you how to use it. Mm-hmm. And I'm the guy who can tell you and hopefully inspire you to want to use it. But if you don't get on the bike or you don't get on the treadmill, it ain't my fault. Yes. And, and, and that doesn't mean I'm not going to be behind you keep and trying to encourage you to get on the bike. But at some point you have to take the responsibility and you have to get on the exercise equipment. And that's how I think a teacher, a teacher's main goal is to inspire students to want to learn and to give them the tools to learn critical thinking. And this is in any class. So literally you should, you should be getting this. Basically school should be almost in a way like, you know, a, a constant reinforcement, one a class moving to the next class of the, of the same exact idea, which is how do you critically assess information? How do you arrive at conclusions? How do you, how do you make decisions and try not to be biased when you make those decisions? Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you evaluate a president or a mayor or a policy or a law or a social problem without it being about whether you like the person or not, or whether Jimmy Kimmel has told you you're supposed to like the person or not, or what your own personal feelings are. How do you analyze things and do it in a way that's objective? And that's not to say you should never have emotion about something or be passionate about something, but how do you, how do you make those types of decisions and evaluate information? Those are skills that, should be taught in every class. Mm-hmm. And then the other stuff's the gravy, right? It's the, this is how a sociologist does it. And there, this is how a mathematician mm-hmm. does it, or this is how a physicist, a physicist does it. And, 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 um, we've lost that. We, we've lost the idea that the responsibility with education resides with the student and that w- to evaluate a teacher is 
almost impossible. Yeah. Right. But what we want to McDonaldize education. So therefore we've come up with these rubrics of you need to have this percentage of successful students engaged or whatever. I mean, uh, a successful student is a, a successful teacher is someone who cares about their students and who knows their material and is an effective inspirer of that material. Other than that, there's not any magic to being a teacher. I yeah, <laughs> just I just agree wholeheartedly with this. It's it's really something I think about a lot. Is just thinking about how to you know meta learning basically is kind of what we're talking about learning how to learn, and it's very front of brain for me because it just always my interest is like I've always just been this kind of person who wants to always be learning, um, and you know it. The title of this podcast should come very clearly to everybody who sees it as the predisposition that I have. Um, and, and I think this conversation really strikes on every cylinder here. And I, this conversation is blowing me away <laughs> for many ways. And I really want to be respectful of your time. We're just over an hour right now. So if there's any other things that you can either one, find more of your work anywhere on the internet or ways to reach out to you. And then any other f closing thoughts, cause we can definitely have more than enough to keep talking about at around two and a later date. Sure. Um, well, certainly, I mean, I, 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 uh, I, anybody wants to get in contact with me, they can certainly do that through the college. I, I have a, if they go to the College of Lake County mm -hmm. website and just search my name, they, they'll get my email. And I'm always happy to hear, especially people who disagree, because everything, a lot of what I said is, is uh, well, some of it is based on sociology and research mm -hmm. and data and some of its opinions. So the opinion stuff certainly is uh, open to question and yes. uh, debate and I could be wrong about everything and then, and probably, yeah. Yeah. That's how we learn. And then, um, and even the, you know, and even the sociology as a science is always a, you know, any good science better be willing to take a look at its conclusion and, and reevaluate re it. So, um, I'd love to hear, people's opinions or ideas. Um, and that's a great way to get in contact with me. Um, for people who live around, uh, in the Lake County area, uh, we love to do, uh, library talks. So mm -hmm. we don't have uh, anything planned right now, but if you email me and let me know if you're interested, we do a lot of talks in the community on things. We just did a talk at, um, the Lucasfilm, uh, Star Wars celebration about, uh, the, the, the life of Brian Daly, who is a Star Wars author. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Really cool person yeah he was a really great person um and uh we like to to do talk we do talks on ricardo montalban and leonard nimoy and but we also do talks on the making of star wars and star mm -hmm. trek and all of that so uh, those are always free for the community and uh we love meeting fellow fans and and uh and uh sharing uh, our research that way awesome and uh thank you again for doing this this is um very enlightening and i hope many people will take away from this and continue to learn and, and just ask themselves questions about the things that we take for granted in general. And, um, thank you. Thank you. Thanks everyone for listening. And, uh, I appreciate it. Awesome. You just listened to an episode of feeding curiosity. Thank you all for listening and tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a like subscribe, Go check out the website over at feedingcuriosity.net and all the other things that we're doing there. And once again, thank you all for tuning in and we will see you in the next episode. I want to take a quick second and talk about how you can support our show. 
I believe this is the most honest way that I can connect with you, the listener, and put it in front of everyone. You can support our show for as little as 99 cents a month. We release four podcasts a month, all at an average length of about an hour. That means you are supporting us at just 25 cents an hour. That's that's cheaper than the dollar menu. I think it's safe to say that we provide more value than that. And if you learn anything from our content, please consider becoming a supporter today with the link in the description of any episode or on the website at feedingcuriosity.net. And with that, thanks for listening and please enjoy the show.